0: Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Community radio is one of the most personal forms of radio. It exists worldwide and provides basic information in times of crises and normalcy, and also provides a medium for storytelling culture, news, and information. Jim Ellinger of Austin Airwaves is our guest in this edition of Radio Curious. Jim is known for his lifelong fascination with the medium of radio. In describing Austin Airwaves, Ellinger wrote, It's an independent community media group based in Austin, Texas. In recent years, it's been most involved in establishing and developing community-based FM radio stations, both low and full power. Increasingly, these stations have been in developing nations, including Haiti, Borneo, Panama, Mozambique, and most recently Cameroon. As well as in post-disaster communities in the United States, including New Orleans and Houston post-Katrina, and Wimberley, Texas, after a deadly flood. As revealed on Ellinger's website, austinairwaves.blogspot.com, he now spends much of his time and effort assisting a variety of media, co-op, and business groups around the world. Ellinger has visited more than 100 cities in 25 countries and territories since 9-11. He's an international leader in emergency broadcasting technology for disaster management. When Jim Ellinger visited Radio Curious by phone from his home in Austin, Texas, on November 17, 2018, we began with his telling the story of when he first became involved with radio,
1: I, it must have been pretty young, Barry, because I remember as, a, as an adolescent having kind of a play radio station, a little studio uh, in a hall closet, and I closed myself off and I had a couple little microphones and and whatnot. So I guess I've uh, found radio the, uh, the non-written communications uh, enticing, perhaps most of my life. I know that now that we've sort of hit our stride here uh, with our little group in Austin, Austin Airwaves, uh, radio is by far the most efficient means of communication. Uh, Everybody can afford a radio. Even if you can't, we'll give you one. Uh, It allows people to speak for themselves and to themselves, unfettered, uninterrupted, uh, uncensored. And so everyone in a small town or a village or an area that's been decimated by a flood or a fire can all listen to the same voice at the same time in real time. There's nothing else like it. Many of these places, they don't have television. Certainly print media is of little value in situations where the community is just coming back from a disaster or it's a non-literate society. And the Internet's good and getting better. But radio seems to be the only mechanism where you can speak to everybody all at once for free.
0: So why do you think that is the case?
1: That's a good question, Barry. Uh, The technology allows uh, a central point that is a small studio with some sort of power source, be it solar cells or electricity comes to the village or the town, uh, allows them to put up an antenna, uh, climb up a tree. One time we put one up on a chimney. Uh, We've made antennas out of bamboo poles to get them above the ground. Footprint might only be a couple of miles, or maybe it's 20 or 30 miles in every direction. But everybody within that footprint can hear the station. And that way, if there's information to be shared to the entire community, it can all be done very efficiently from a central point.
0: So by footprint, you're talking about the broadcast radius from the transmission uh, in a more or less a circle, obviously adjusted by changes in terrain. That's
1: exactly right. And most of the stations that we now deal with are what is known as LPFMs, low-power FM stations, both here in the States and around the world the station will be about 100 watts or 50 watts, or some of them are only 10 or 20 watts. So they only broadcast a few miles in every direction, and as you said, the terrain makes a big difference. That works, though, because it's practical. The power source is limited. It allows you to speak to that group. Now, if you're just beyond the range of the station, that's a problem. But many of the situations that Austin Airways has been involved in have been targeted to small towns, to villages, or even to the Ninth Ward in uh, Louisiana, New Orleans, uh, following Katrina. We assisted a couple of stations, very low power, uh, operating out of a tent in the lower Ninth district of New Orleans, uh, days after Katrina. We even put one on the air in the parking lot of the Houston Astrodome, uh, to a very limited area, but people who had very specific needs. More recently, in the lovely little Texas town of Wimberley, Texas, Uh, which suffered a a devastating, deadly flood. Uh, We put a station on the air in a garage and it literally literally shimmied up a uh, chimney to put the antenna up. As we were testing it out, I would say over the air, if you can hear the sound of my voice, go to Facebook, which was the only communication they had at the time, and say where you are and what time it is to the minute. And lo and behold, a couple of dozen people posted right away, we can hear you. And as the internet went down, And as people's cell phones began to get dead, the radio became increasingly valuable. And for a few people, it was the sole source of information, be it from the Red Cross, be it from the church group that's giving out food, uh, from the sheriff's office, the emergency operations center. And a lot of the information was very basic. That is, you're coming to the Red Cross, you have to bring good ID. If you're coming to the church to get a free meal, you can't bring your dog. Probably not unlike what a lot of California communities are facing now with the devastating fires. Basic rudimentary information urgently needed by a local community.
0: Your kind of work deals more with information in times of emergency, whether it be in fire-ridden areas or flood-ridden areas or in earthquake zones, such as your work in, in Haiti. How do you pick up and move, and what do you need to set up an emergency radio station, a Transmission Central, as you have done in so many places in so many parts of the world?
1: Well, in some places, we get there, and the station has been put on the air. They've been on the air for a week or a couple of days. Other times, we had to carry in uh, large amounts of equipment. Uh, coming into Haiti, uh, I had three 100-pound uh, construction boxes, heavy-duty boxes on wheels, and brought those into the Port-au-Prince Airport and had 300 pounds of gear. It was, it was very difficult. Had to tra- travel and get out of Port-au-Prince, which was largely devastated, uh, and head up into the mountains, uh, where they still had uh, batteries that would power the station. Uh, in other cities, uh, in places around the world, uh, Cameroon, Mozambique, Borneo, uh, the bits and pieces of a radio station that is a power source. So they have batteries or they have solar panels are there. And the studios are often very rudimentary. It's just a table with a couple of mixing boards, uh, a small transmitter, a, some coaxial wire that goes out the back window and up the hill to a, a tree. So sometimes we have to bring in everything we need, which is an old travel uh, tip. You know, everything you need, you got to bring it with you. And that the logistics of just getting from America to say, in a rural Cameroon, and that alone is a, is a real difficult challenge. Uh, increasingly, though, everything can be done on a laptop. You can have a mixing board and audio editing on a laptop. The transmitters that we typically use are very small. Uh, they're no bigger than a toaster often. And most of the equipment is brought in uh, by in suitcases, uh, which are, from our experience, lightly inspected. Some of the operations we have been associated with uh, the idea of bringing in or even sneaking in a radio transmitter uh, might be frowned on. But as being an American tourist uh, with American tourist or luggage, they just let me go right through. They never even looked at my bags.
0: So, Jim Ellinger, let's talk about Cameroon. You were there in the spring of 2017 under some pretty unusual circumstances, and you were working out in the bush uh, with your group. Tell us about Uh, that. Cameroon
1: is now one of the most difficult gigs ever.
0: Cameroon is
1: directly under Nigeria, under the hump of Africa. It is sometimes referred to as the Hinge of Africa. It has the four different biospheres there. And just getting to the village of Inditum, in pygmy country, uh, is a couple of days. You have to cross a river. It's not easy. The roads are oftentimes just sort of theoretical. Traveling with the gear and, and, uh, and folks is very difficult. And upon arriving in the village of Inditum, we were warmly greeted, and we saw that the villagers there had already built a building with a good roof and had a solar system installed by a fellow from Switzerland, and they had little studios, and but they needed the basic equipment, and they needed to be taught how to use it. And so we spent a few weeks there uh, living pretty modestly, I would have to say, and helped them put the station together, tested it out. Uh, a couple times the power supply burned up, Somebody had to ride a motorcycle to the big city and back. That's a couple of days. Everything was very difficult there. Uh, There's a lot of hunger, but but no starvation. Uh, This area is mainly known uh, for the Pygmies. We visited a Pygmy village, which was very unusual. But after a couple of weeks, we started testing this uh, station. They had a tower up. We put a little uh, solar-powered light at the very top. And for the first time ever in this village, they could look up in the sky and see lights because there's really no lights after dark. And they said, okay, we're going to put the station on. Uh, the chief will be there. Some other chiefs will be there, and it's going to be a very big day. And I, being the one largely responsible for actually putting the station on the air, was terribly worried that we would turn it on, it would last five minutes, and the power supply would burn up again. Uh, it's very, very difficult. And everybody trusts you and counting on you, and the hopes are there uh, for a better day for indeedum. And comes the big day. We put the chief there in the chair, and okay, and you know, push that button, chief, and talk. And it worked. Like, thank goodness, it worked just fine. Jim,
0: why did you go to Cameroon?
1: We were asked. Onsenairway we really isn't going out looking for new assignments. We're a small enough group. We're plenty busy with our own lives. We typically wait for someone to come to find us and ask us, "Can you help our group? Can you help our radio project?" most folks are, to be honest, more dreamers than practical users. But there was a fellow named Isa, a wildly colorful man, an artist, and he had a couple benefits for his radio station here in Austin, Texas. And he asked me to speak about the value of community radio, allowing people to speak for themselves and to themselves out in the bush. And I think what I finally figured out is they were kind of grooming me. And it came the day they said, well, would you be willing to come to Indeedum? Would you be willing to come to Cameroon and help us put the station on here and We'll cover your costs. So how could I say no? So, uh, and we're looking for other projects, but it was mainly just kind of see what comes forth, see what steps up to our, our, our door uh, and says, can you help us? Because we seem to have a set of skills and resources that not many people have nowadays.
0: Over the years that you and I have been friends and and friends in radio, my sense is that uh, Cameroon is one of the more interesting parts of the world where you have been. Tell us about the community, what it was like, other than what the radio work you did uh, happened to be.
1: Again, this would be a small, remote, poor African village deep in the bush, um, a day or two's drive uh, back to civilization and electricity and cooked food. Uh, the village had almost no metal in it. Um, I'm kind of well-known for handing out Austin Airways refrigerator magnets, and I would put one on your office door or, or refrigerator, and this village had almost no metal in it. They would have a pot and a machete, and, and it was you know, pretty primitive, very nice people, very honest. Uh, kids were clean, uh, but it's just so far away from anything. And every morning, the villagers would go out into the field and they would have a very modest six or eight rows of corn and some other crops. And they would work them all summer just to get a few ears of corn or rice. And once a week, uh, the kids who went to school, there was a modest school there, the kids had to go out on the road with machetes, boys and girls, and chop back the forest for a couple of hours. Then they would get breakfast and they would go to school because if you don't chop back the forest, the forest will eat you. I learned in Cameroon, the forest will eat anything and everything. The forest will eat cars and trucks. The forest will eat roads. The the forest, given enough time, will eat an entire village. The trees and the vines will come in, and eventually it will have devoured it. So you have to constantly fight back uh, the, the jungle itself. So life there was very difficult, and transportation was difficult, and You know, very nice people, honest, hardworking, fascinating people. But to live that way all your life, you know, there's no real history. They don't know what happened in their country 50 years or 100 years ago. They have no idea what's going to happen to them next week or next month or next year. And they're isolated, and they're just working on getting food. And so much of the world is like that that giving them a chance to speak to themselves and for themselves to maybe work something out where they can improve their condition, we have found that the radio, FM radio, is the best tool that we can make available to them.
0: We're visiting with Jim Ellinger, a longtime friend and colleague of Radio Curious, and Jim is a longtime co-op and community media activist. He's based in Austin, Texas. You're listening to Radio Curious, I'm Barry Vogel. Jim, let's talk about the difference between community radio and public radio. How would you describe that?
1: Well, I would first discern, are you speaking about capital P, public radio, national public radio? Or are you talking about small P, community stations, uh, non-commercial stations, campus stations? The difference between a small community radio station, such as you might be listening to this show on, is that they're community-based. They're probably modestly uh, funded with a few staffers, lots and lots of volunteers, and very reflective of the local community. You might have some bluegrass show or reggae shows uh, or kahunta shows, depending on what the makeup of your town is. Usually these community radio stations sound very much like the community. NPR out of Washington is a very different animal. It gets millions of dollars in funding. They have lots of signature shows, All Things Considered, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Morning Edition, shows that tens of millions of people listen to. And for many people, it's their primary source of information on what's going around in the country and around the world as they drive to work or as they drive home. Most of those NPR stations are affiliated with universities. And they're very big and they have many, many employees and their annual budget runs into the millions of dollars. They're a valuable part of the non-commercial portion of the dial that you see over on the left-hand side, 88 to 92. I would say the biggest difference between a community radio station and your local NPR affiliate is the size and localism. Your community station probably sounds like your community.
0: Jim Ellinger, let's change topics a little bit and talk about cell phones and their use worldwide in relationship to radio.
1: Years ago when we were in, say, Ghana or Mozambique or Panama, oftentimes the main information that the locals wanted were what are the price of mangoes? How much is a kilo of yams worth when the big man in the big truck comes to the market on Saturday and is buying them? Uh, Do we get 50 cents a kilo for yams? Do we get a dollar a kilo uh, for uh, papaya? And this is very important for them. This is their lifeblood. Used to be they didn't know that just two villages over, the guy was paying twice as much. And so they would want to know what is the price of locally produced produce. Similarly, they also wanted to know what the football scores were, that is, soccer. They wanted to know if their country's team made it to the playoffs. And they wanted someone to read the newspaper for them, several times their non-literate societies. Well, the only way to do that at the time was on radio. But increasingly, cell phones are ubiquitous, and they can get all that information and more just by texting their cousin two villages over and asking them, how much are you getting for yams this week? So this is a good thing. If there's another way for people to get information they need.
0: There seems to be an age gap uh, in terms of finesse and facility with uh, smartphones, particularly here in the United States. What are your thoughts about the future use Related to the age difference and the future use of those who listen to and use radio versus cell phones.
1: Excellent point. We believe that the future of radio is smartphones. That increasingly more and more people listen to radio on their phone. When I was in Borneo, an extremely remote area, it was the first time where more people were listening to the little radio station a very small station, very remote, more people were listening on their phones with their earbuds than they were the over-the-air signal. We've been places where the, some people listened, but increasingly the cell phone and the smartphone especially are the main source of audio information being provided. This is especially so uh, for millennials and young people who grew up with the Internet, who grew up having information available to them to, at the push of a button, who don't even necessarily own a radio. Maybe they listen to the radio when they're in their parents' car, but not by choice. More and more audio information, the radio, is going to be coming to folks over their phones.
0: And how does that work? That's a question from somebody who grew up listening to radio but has had a smartphone for um, maybe six, seven years.
1: Well, clearly it's a generational thing. Uh, I'm 65. I think you might be just a little bit older, Barry. Folks of our generation's, are used to having a radio on the countertop or listening in their car or having a small radio on the table when you're out in the garden uh, working in the yard. Uh, Those days are coming to an end by and large. People just turn their phones into radios with a little amplifier and you see the wide distribution, the increasing distribution of podcasts Uh, notably NPR's podcasts are growing exponentially. Uh, Interestingly, More women listen to NPR podcasts than men. And as radio becomes, uh, I hate to say an antique, but the act of listening to a radio signal that's gone through the air and bumped into your antenna and went through the amplifier and came out that little speaker, uh, be it in your truck or on the kitchen table, those days seem to be winding down. The big difference is, is that radio can broadcast when the Internet goes down or when the cell phone service goes down. And we used to say everybody has a radio, even poor people, even homeless people, even people in villages. Typically, if they did not themselves own a radio, there would be a radio at the village center or the grocery store or the bar where people could gather around and listen to news. That is becoming less and less common now as radio, even though it's the only source of audio information frequently in post-disaster areas, generally speaking, we see radio as a popular medium, declining here in the developed West.
0: So, Jim, if you had your choice, if you could design the next radio project to meet your dream, what would that project look like?
1: It's nice to be able to go into a disaster area and not be a problem. Sometimes people go in and want to take pictures, say they're documentarians, or they want to go in and help, but they really are just a hindrance. We like to be able to go in with the whole kit, the whole package, and in a short amount of time, with little or no help, put the station up and on the air, train the trainers. Here's how you do it. You're going to be training the kids and the grandmothers. Get it all up and running. Get the trainers trained and then leave. That is one of Austin Airways' rules of thumb. We don't stick around. We're there for a few weeks. Station's up and running. Thank you very much, and we leave. It seems we're sort of heading towards post-disaster radio. More and more, both here in the States and around the world, when somebody emails us and they say, well, we're in dire shape here, we were gonna do a project, but the dam broke and the the soldiers came and took everything, or the doctors didn't come and the children are all sick, um, but we still have resources, uh, could you help us? And I think we're gonna see more and more of those. Uh, And it would be nice to be able to come to other villages, to other locations, Uh, do the good deed of allowing them to speak for themselves and to themselves, and they return home safely.
0: When you say we, referring to those of you who go to a far distant land and set up a radio situation and are gone after it's set up, who is that we? Typically,
1: it is either people who are connected to the project. In the case of Cameroon, the founder of the station, the man with all the connections, the, the guy that everybody knows at the airport speaks the local dialect, is connected, would be part of it. Other crew, uh, le- the last crew uh, in Cameroon was a documentary film uh, crew that also served as, you know, frankly, baggage handlers and, and hold the wire here as we solder it into place. We usually bring a small crew. We also bring my partner, uh, Karen, who's a a senior medical officer and a paramedic here in Texas, um, quarter-century uh, frontline rescuer, uh, both to help out in, in logistics and in the event of someone gets sick or injured. Most of the people we pick up can be somewhat associated with the project we're taking on and notably are seasoned travelers. They're not worried that they're going to have to sleep in the bus station overnight. Uh, they don't need air conditioning, and they brought their own mattress. Each project is unique. Usually on the head of the project you know, heading out overseas, but not always. Uh, Austin Airways is its own group. We're a small nonprofit. We're a 501c3. Uh, we have our own board, and we have maybe a half a dozen attorneys uh, that we confer with on occasion and maybe 10 or 20 uh, engineer-type guys, and we kind of draw together uh, folks who have the time and the ability and the interest to go to a, a, a Haiti or a Panama or a Ghana or a Mozambique or a Cameroon for a couple of weeks and uh, do the project. So it's usually me, but not always me.
0: Well, Jim Ellinger, thank you so much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask about you. Can we begin with uh, you sharing with us a eureka or an aha moment at some point in your life that changed your life?
1: One of the very first stations I put on the air was here in Austin, Texas, Co-op Radio, seven. And it had been a long and arduous battle uh, with a very wealthy and very powerful and very aggressive University of Texas. Uh, And after many years of fighting with UT, including having to modify the Wolfman-Jack Treaty uh, with Mexico, there's some radio trivia for you, uh, we finally were able to cut a deal, and the community group got on during the day, co-op radio, and a student group, KVRX, broadcast overnight. And in order to do that, we had to give up the morning drive. Uh, the single biggest block of radio listenership in the States. And I found that as hard as that was, compromise was the only way through. And compromise means you're going to have to lose or give up something that you want, and you don't think it's right, and, and we didn't, the university didn't really need this station, uh, and a lot of politics were involved. So I found that the mechanisms of negotiating, the ability to kind of give up a portion in order to move forward a project, was very much a eureka moment for me because I'd always been the kind of guy who would fight to the end and either you would win or you would lose.
0: Jim, what would you like to do with the remainder of your One Precious Life?
1: Plant more trees. I find myself wanting to plant more trees and I've got three yards in a row here in central Austin, Texas and I've planted 41 trees so far of a wide range, some native, some not.
0: And finally, is there a book that you can recommend to our listeners?
1: Yes, and along that very same line, I have a copy here in my hand of The Man Who Planted Trees, Lost Groves, Champion Trees, and the Urgent Plan Plan to Save the Planet uh, by Jim Robbins, uh, The Man Who Planted Trees. and It talks about the dire need to replace the billions of trees that are being lost worldwide and the repercussions for the environment and the land Also to save the DNA, because many diseases are still uncured, and we don't know what plant might be the cure for AIDS or for cancer or for leukemia. Again, the book is called The Man Who Planted Trees by Jim Robbins.
0: Well, Jim Ellinger, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious.
1: I'm really glad to be here on Radio Curious, Barry. Thanks so much.
0: Jim Ellinger of Austin Airwaves is an independent community media consultant and an international leader in the field of emergency broadcasting technology for disaster management. The book Jim Ellinger recommends is The Man Who Planted Trees, The Story of Lost Groves, The Science of Trees, and a Plan to Save the Planet by Jim Robbins. This program was recorded on November 17, 2018. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.